Blood Bond by Nick Bastin. Copyright 2019, Nick Bastin. Chapter 44, Ard Brecknish. Bridge could not remember when she'd slept better, whether it had been the quality of the bed in the down duvet, the near-death experience of the previous day, or the several hours of vigorous lovemaking, she couldn't say. As she opened her eyes, she gazed on McCallum Moore's profile across the pillows. He was at least ten years older than her, not quite middle-aged, but on the way. His rather dull brown hair was beginning to grey at the temples, and it was roughly parted leaving a floppy fringe across his forehead, giving him a more boyish look than he deserved. His Roman nose was distinguished, and he had so far managed to hold on to the cheekbones that nature had given him. His trim physique was not of a hard, muscle-bound fighter. That didn't bother her. In fact, she was rather attracted to its hint of softness. McCallum Moore seemed different, though. She had felt that urgency in him as he'd held her. That need for someone, someone to hold, to caress, to kiss and to fuck and be fucked by, as if he had been too alone since his wife had died. For her own reasons she had felt that emptiness, exacerbated by the clumsy advances and fumblings of her many suitors. So she felt good as she swung her legs out of the bed, and with a smile on her face she potted around the unfeasibly large bedroom, opening doors trying to find the bathroom. McCallum Moore woke as she was drying her hair, and he spent the first few minutes of wakefulness admiring her from afar, as she toweled and tousled. She caught him looking at her and realised he'd been watching for some time. To get her revenge, she threw the sodden towel over his head while she pulled on her clothes. When he finally got out of bed, it was her turn to cast an admiring glance while he crossed the room to the bathroom and he pulled his silliest face at her before closing the door behind him. Bridge got the feeling that the staff were unusually quiet over breakfast, not that she had much of a benchmark to compare it with, of course, having never been waited on at breakfast before. She imagined that despite their stony, ramrod-straight postures, they were all sniggering on the inside at the look of their master's latest conquest. But she didn't mind. It had been a beautiful moment, and if that was all it remained, so be it. McCallum Moore peered at her over the morning's copy of The Raven. She could see a dramatic picture on the front cover of a border crossing with the banner headline, Rannock Rats Strike Kingdom Farmer Gold. She could see from the smile on his face that as far as he was concerned, it wasn't wholly bad news. What's happening? she asked. Ha! It's those Grigorach bastards. They've only gone and raided across the border in Dundee, ripping off some highly valuable pharmaceuticals in the process. Doesn't sound too good to me, she said. Surely that will just get the kingdom all riled. Aye, it will, but it'll also mean there is some other bastard for the Coralie to get worked up about rather than just me alone. Old Athol is responsible for maintaining the integrity of that border. He's going to have to answer a lot of questions as to why the Grigorach passed with such impunity. And to be honest, from a personal perspective, anything that puts ants in Athol's pants is fine by me. Honestly, you chiefs are like barons sometimes. Most of the time, coming to think about it, Breach said. All of the time, I think you'll find, he replied with a smile. And please, for goodness sake, call me Colin. Anyone who survives a night in my bed and lives to tell the tale gets that privilege. Oh, I feel so honoured and so special, Colin. Is that what you say to all the girls? Laughing, she went to brush her teeth and get ready for their return to the infirmary. Niall was sitting up in bed when they arrived, and although he was still deathly pale, he at least managed to smile as they walked through the door. 
It'd be moved to a new room, presumably to allow a deep clean of the gore left by the previous day's struggle. This room had a large picture window over the loch, and Breed craned her head trying to catch sight of Dundarav. How are you feeling, she asked, getting a wan smile from Niall in return. Oh, you know, not too bad now that I don't have assassins trying to murder me in my sleep, he croaked. The subdued laugh that followed caused him to wince with pain. McCann Moore leant forward. Aye, well, it's great to see you still breathing. Now, we wanted to ask you a few quick questions so that we can try and get to the bottom of what's going on. Niall nodded, concentrating hard. Speaking was clearly an effort and painful due to the chest wound he'd sustained. It was Alan Stewart. He winced at both the words and the memory. The Lamentations man. It was him that did it all. First he cut poor Archie's throat and then pinned my hand to the table before shooting Ewan and Alexander. Finally he stabbed me. I can still see those black eyes of his staring into me as he pushed the blade in. He shuddered and rubbed the bandage in the middle of his chest. I also remember setting the place on fire, I guess to cover his tracks. The last thing I saw was poor Archie open the doors to try and get out. He was holding his neck together, there was blood everywhere. Did he make it? No, I'm afraid he didn't, said McCallum Moore. He died in there, as did Alexander and Ewan, as should you too, if the McNuchton Beaton hadn't come to your rescue. What, the Beaton? Really? Aye, well, you're one lucky bastard, and as Napoleon once said, God give me lucky generals. McCallum Moore stood up and gave him a hug, being careful not to catch any of the many tubes and wires while he did so. Breed smiled indulgently from the edge of her bed and put her fingers on Nar's left hand giving it a little squeeze for good measure, before saying, None of which helps explain why he did it, though, does it? McCann and Moore stood up. No, you're right. It doesn't. But the one thing I know about Alan Stewart, he doesn't do anything without John Lamont having ordered it. There's something else. Breach paused as both McCann and Moore and Niall Campbell looked at her. It was something that I heard in Dundarav yesterday. You know those clansmen of yours that were killed at Clacken during the chase of those fugitives over Ben Booyah? McCallum Moore nodded. Well, one of our clans saw the murder of your two men at, on the edge of the village, and those same killers later got back into a boat and disappeared south down the loch. Apparently they were carrying a prisoner, which we believe was Kirsty McNuchton, a good friend of mine and a senior clan leader. I'm guessing by the surprised look on your face that she wasn't brought back by your men. McCallum Moore shook his head. No, my men didn't come back with anyone. They told me there'd been a scuffle, resulting in one of the cats being stolen and a few store heads, but that the enemy to which he checked himself. Excuse me, the suspects then escaped into the dark across the river. We sent patrols through the northern glens during the night, but didn't catch them. Just to confirm, you didn't have any men in boats, Breach asked. No. Okay, so it seems pretty clear that an interloper is involved. And if that interloper was Alan Stewart, then the person pulling the strings behind the scenes must be John Lamont. Aye, said McCallum Moore, it must be the scheming bastard. What would I give to have him here so we could ask him a few questions? Breeze reached out an arm to his shoulder. Will you help us get Kirsty back? If she's in Castle Ascog, I'm worried about what may be happening to her in there. Could you help us? Standing to his feet and gazing out of the window, McCullen Moore said, Aye, if I can, I will. If that slimy bastard thinks he can fuck me over, he's got another thing coming. But he's slipperier than one of his greased eels. If we're to catch him, we need to be careful. Very careful. Breach nodded and said, Well, the first thing you should do is announce Niall's unfortunate demise. What? Niall said, wincing in indignation. In this game of smoke and mirrors, surely we want the clever bastard to think that his plan has been successful, so you can catch him off guard. 
forewarned is forearmed, and we have the warning now. He won't know that we know, and that will give us some advantage. Ah, uh, you're right, McAllenmore nodded, and I'm sure he's laid a trap for me. But I need to catch him in the act. While he thinks he has the upper hand, we can spring our own little surprise. And he pulled her closer to him, kissing her tenderly. You're smart, as well as beautiful. Niall looked on in a mixture of surprise, horror and jealousy. Chapter 45 For the waters are come in unto my soul. John Lambert took off his glasses and put them down on the desk. He resented having to wear them and hated the dark red marks they left on his nose. Pushing back his chair, he stood up and strode purposefully out of the room, crossing the landing that led from rudimentary and robust 15th century part of the castle to the opulent and elegant 18th century wing. His soul squeaked across the highly polished parquet floor. He stopped in front of a nondescript door, his hand falling to its brass-ribbed handle. As he opened it, a blast of cold air and the damp mustiness it bore was enervating. Breathing deeply, he paused before descending the steps, which spiralled downwards into the living rock. After a few flights, he came to a studded oak door that he opened with a clunk. The room beyond was neat, well-swept and smelled of bleach. The stone walls had been whitewashed and the floor was covered in poured rubber with a centralised drain hole set under a sturdy-looking chair, each leg of which was screwed to the floor with its own substantial bolt. The legs and arms of the chair also had metal cuffs attached to utterly restrain any occupant's limbs. He ran his finger, chasing the grain, dark brown and worn. At that moment, a door in the far wall opened and Alan Stewart entered, his black eyes twinkling. Donna Lamont was right behind him, burdened with a laptop and chewing remorselessly on a mouthful of gum. He waved Donna over to a table in the corner to set up her laptop, while Alan helped him with a thick iron ring set in a trapdoor in the floor. He peered into the darkness below. Now, my dear, I hope you didn't think we'd forgotten about you down there, even if you are in an oubliette. Not just any oubliette, I might add, but my oubliette, which I'm sure you'll agree is a little special. My good man, Alan Stewart, says that so far you've been refusing to play ball, I hope you understand that we cannot allow that to continue. Why don't I winch you up and we can have a little guessing game. We can see how many turns it takes for you to give me the right answers. I love games, do you? But I always find they're so much more thrilling if there's a forfeit involved, as that really concentrates the player's mind. Rather like gambling, I always say that if it doesn't hurt when you lose, you aren't playing for high enough stakes. Would you like to play, Kirsty? Or shall I leave you down there for a few days to think about it? Most of my guests seem to be very keen to leave my oubliette. I can't think why. He nodded to Alan, who winched her up out of the hole in the floor. Kirsty was covered in filth and was shaking violently. Whether from cold or fear was hard to say. Alan quickly bound her in the chair. I think we can all agree that it's so much more civilised if we can all just get along. Don't you? said the lamentation. After all, this is just a simple transaction. You have something we want, the access code and we have something we can give you in return. Respite from my good friend Alan. There is no need to make it complicated and unpleasant, is there? Kirsty was slumped head down. She said nothing. The lamentation nodded to Alan, who began laying out the tools of his trade on the table in front of her, starting with a lump hammer. If the brave fool thinks she can tough it out, well, she would learn soon enough. He left Alan to it while he went for a coffee, returning half an hour later to find Donna focused on the white lines of code unravelling from her cursor, her pouchy yellow cheeks creased in concentration as she sucked and chewed on her gum.
Her snub nose was wrinkled in thought, pushing her glasses up her face and making her eyes look even more distended than usual, while the lank tendrils of her hair hung around her head like kelp on the shore, flat and lifeless. Lament stood behind her left shoulder, watching and gently encouraging her. He knew nothing of computer code or what the endless series of command prompts and flurries of pixels meant. That was why he had Donna, after all, and she was the best. The snivelling from the other side of the room was a little trying, though. He idly watched the swelling puddle of piss that was pooling under the seat, following its progress as it started to meander its way across the poured rubber floor towards him. What a mess. Lifting his eyes from the piss to the occupant of the chair, her legs and arms secured firmly in heavy metal bands which allowed no prospect of escape. Her face hung down, hiding the worst of her bruises. Her short hair wilted as if matching her mood. Her nose blew small bubbles in the blood that trickled from her nostrils each time she exhaled. A crimson balloon swelling and bursting in rhythm with her ragged breathing. Good, good. We do seem to be making progress, don't we? I'm so delighted that you learned that part of the game so quickly. Many of our guests take much longer to learn how to play, and I fear that they later regret their slowness. What we can all agree is that Alan is a little genius with that hammer, don't you think? From under her fringe, Kirsty moaned. Oh, don't be like that. He's barely begun to show you what he can do and where he can take you. To be honest, we were expecting you to hold out for a little longer. We thought you McNuchtons were tougher. After all, you've survived having those bastard candles for neighbours for so long. But no matter, if you want him to give you a full demonstration, I'm sure that can be arranged. Alan Stewart's beetle-black eyes stared back at him like bottomless pits. Donna suddenly exhaled deeply, combined with a little fist pump. Yay, that's it. And turning to Kirsty, she taunted her. Who's the daddy now, bitch? You think you're so goddamn clever, but I got the measure of you. That double-stacked encryption was sneaky, but not so very special in the end. And seeing as how you've given us the admin codes, I think we can all agree that Clan McNuchton's day in the online gaming sun is over. We're officially in control, and if I just change the passwords like so, we've now officially locked out any of your colleagues and might try and take it back. Is that done then? Lament felt slightly foolish for having to ask. Yes, it is. I've now switched all the passwords and admin codes so their programmers will not be able to gain access. But the best part is that I've switched all the revenue accumulation into our accounts so you can see the money coming in. Look there at that counter. Following her finger, Lament was mesmerised by the counter that was clocking up numbers at a rapid rate. Is that in coin? he asked, somewhat incredulous. No, dollars. Brilliant, isn't it? Just goes to show you how those bastards have been raking it in for years. Well, their goose is now well and truly cooked. Why, thank you, Donna. That's reassuring to hear. The question is, what do we do with our guest? It seems like we have everything we need. But to be honest, I'm not sure we can allow her to leave. Castle Ascog is a bit like the Hotel California in that respect. As you can imagine, I can't allow my former guest to run around besmirching my good name now, can I? But you promised, mumbled Kirsty. Yes, I know I did. Shame about that. Still, the question is, shall I give you to Alan to enjoy? Or maybe Donna? Would you like to have a crack of the whip, so to speak? Nah, said Donna. I'll stick to computing, thanks. Donna was packing up her computer when she said, Actually, it might make sense to keep her around for a few more days. I want to make sure I've got all of the code sorted first. I don't want to run into any more hidden surprises. If we can just keep her on ice until I'm sure that we're in the clear, that would be good. Oh dear, Alan will be disappointed. Lamont looked at Alan Stewart, whose face reflected no emotion whatsoever. Then, beginning to tire of his own charade, Lamont brought the session to a close, 
ordering Alan to take her to the castle cells as there was a fresh guest due in the oubliette. Chapter 46 The Black Watch The words had barely flown Alistair MacGregor's lips when the first detonation went off, showering them with broken glass and throwing them to the floor. An instant later, a further explosion convulsed the room and the wall where the dartboard had been disappeared in a thick cloud of smoke. Gillespie's ears were ringing so loudly that although Nin and Charlie were shouting at him, he couldn't hear what they were saying. Nin started scrabbling around the floor and finding a jagged piece of broken glass cut the cable tie that bound Charlie's hands. Seconds later, they were all free from their bonds and Charlie made a long arm for their gear, which was still lying on the table behind them. Their captors had all scattered and were seeking cover behind turned-over tables and chairs or behind the bar, getting as low to the ground as they could. The room erupted in a violent melee as black-clad figures poured through the hole in the wall, spraying the room with automatic gunfire and cutting down any of the Grigorach that were still on their feet. Gillespie saw the wild-looking Indian hurl a war quoit at the first attacker. It buried itself deeply in the man's forehead, nearly severing the top of his head. Three of the Grigorach to their left scrambled as a grenade was tossed over the table they were sheltering behind. One caught the full impact of the resulting blast and lay still with his guts torn open, while the other two were immediately shot as they tried to flee. Then Sal was on her feet with an assault rifle pinned to her hip, firing controlled bursts into the oncoming figures, several of which fell immediately while the others retreated back through the smoke-filled hole. As the Grigorach gradually recovered from the initial shock of the assault, they grabbed whatever weapons were to hand. Alistair MacGregor started to show his mettle, shouting orders and directing the defence. He sent the man with the plat upstairs to see what was going on outside, while directing small groups to various points around the building to provide a defensive field of fire. The confusion in the room was now solidifying into something more comprehensible, but Gillespie did not find that reassuring. The building was clearly surrounded, and heavy bursts of gunfire were raking the structure. His eye was distracted for a moment by the bizarre sight of all the horse brasses twinkling as they shook in the wake of the bullets rending the air. The man with the plat reappeared and shouted at Alistair, whose hitherto calm face became grave. He started shouting orders, disposing his forces. Rather than go out of the hole left by their attackers, he pointed to a large plate glass window on the neighbouring wall. Sal shattered the glass with a burst of gunfire, and the bulk of the Grigorach poured through it while heavy covering fire was maintained by several defenders from inside. Come on, said Charlie. We can't stay here. That's the fucking Black Watch. If we want to live, we're going to have to run. Now. Grabbing their gear, he made for the front door, on the opposite side of the building to where the Grigorach were escaping. Seconds after they left the bar, the room behind erupted in a sheet of flame and a cloud of smoke as their assailants sought to silence the defence. Time was moving in jump cuts, and Gillespie struggled to focus. His brain was rattling with one word only. Fuck, 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 fuck. He stuck like glue behind Nin and Charlie. As they opened the front door, they saw a line of cats pull up in front of the inn, but their attackers had been drawn away to the other side of the building where the Grigorach breakout was in full effect. Sheltering behind the vehicles, they watched as the battle unfolded. Despite their ragtag appearance, the Grigorach were highly organised. Alistair had split them into a series of small strike teams and had pushed out from the building in a fan formation, taking the battles to the enemy and not giving them a group target. Each strike team moved as a unit, taking it in turns to provide covering fire as they advanced towards their attackers, 
rolling smoke canisters to obscure their progress. But their assailants were not amateurs either, and the Grigorak's numbers were being thinned dramatically as they crossed the open ground. Finally, they closed the gap, and the ensuing melee disappeared behind the thickening smoke. Come on, get in the cat, for fuck's sake, Charlie said, throwing their gear in the back as he climbed into the driving seat. Their departure stalled for a few painful seconds as each pocket was patted down looking for the key before it was found and jammed in the ignition. Racing the engine, Charlie swung the cat out and tore down the track away from the inn. As he rounded a corner, he suddenly threw the wheel over, almost spilling Nin out of the back. There was a further line of vehicles beyond, guarding the route that led down the lock to the east. Fortunately, they had taken this second line of defence somewhat by surprise, and it wasn't until they were almost back behind the cover of the neighbouring house that the bullets started to pucker the mud around their retreating rear. They were now heading back towards the action, where the smoke was starting to disperse and the gunfire subside. That did not mean that the fighting was any less intense. In fact, quite the opposite. The small groups were locked in hand-to-hand fighting. With all the figures similarly dressed in black, it was difficult to see who was getting the upper hand. Nearest to them, they saw Alistair Sal and the man with the plat fighting a group of black-clad figures. Sal had clearly exhausted her ammunition and was swinging her assault rifle like a club, while Alistair had a claymore drawn in his right hand and a pistol in his left. The man with his top knot had been reduced to a skin do. Alistair was faced by two assailants with swords drawn. Without hesitation, he double-tapped one with his pistol, spinning him backwards, while simultaneously catching the other's blow on the edge of his claymore, before bringing his pistol round to dispatch him. Gillespie would long remember the look of horror on Alistair's face as his frantic pulling of his trigger finger elicited no response from the now empty weapon. His opponent, sensing his opportunity, shouldered him to the ground, smashing his basket-hilted sword into the side of his face. Alistair was dazed, spread-eagled on the ground, defenceless, waiting for the killing blow. In a flash, Nin leapt from the cat onto the attacker, grabbing his sword arm with one hand and choking off his airway with the other. They wrestled for a few moments, but Nin was too strong for him and the would-be killer's body soon went limp. Alistair looked up from the ground in stunned amazement, before being grabbed by Charlie and pushed into the back of the cat. Meanwhile, Sal had bludgeoned her own opponent to the ground, delivering a mighty roundhouse kick to his head to settle her account, before jumping into the cat next to Charlie. All eyes now turned to the man with the top knot, who leapt at his opponent, slashing his dagger at the soldier's outstretched hand. As he made contact, his opponent managed to squeeze off a volley of shots into him, that did not stop his blade, which he frenziedly stabbed at the soldier's face, neck and chest. They both went down. Neither got up again. Charlie streaked off up the glen, leaving the fighting behind. Alistair tried to protest from the floor of the cat. Even if they could have heard him above the roar of the engine, it would have made no difference. Charlie was making for the forestry that covered the hill above the houses. If they could just get amongst the trees, they might have a chance to escape. For a few minutes as they slogged up the hill, Gillespie hoped they might have escaped the notice of their attackers. But as the sounds of gunfire pieced out behind them, a line of vehicles started out from the village on their tail. Chapter 47. Smoke and Mirrors As soon as McCallum Moore got back to the castle, he summoned his press team and briefed them on what to tell the urban raven. He even allowed them to get creative on some of the detail, complete with the timing and location for Niall's funeral, designated charities and a request for no flowers. He then summoned Farker Campbell of Knapp, who he packed off to lock down the infirmary so no news could get out. Satisfied that a convincing false trail had been laid, he sat at his desk and stared out of the window. There were many things he should have been thinking about, such as his summons before the Corley the following day, 
or his pressing question of increased day rates for his independent companies in the deserts of the Tibet Sea, or how he was going to get timber felling equipment up to his plantation on Ben Kurukan. All of which were questions that Duncan, his steward, was remorselessly pressing him for answers for. Instead, the only thing that came to his mind was Bridge's pale and curvaceous body, the sweep of her breasts and her glorious pear-shaped rear, how he wanted to have her near and run his hands over her silky contours, the smell of her too. If he closed his eyes, he could just pluck it from the air in front of him. And another ten minutes were lost in glassy-eyed reverie as he luxuriated in the memory of their night together. Finally, resigned to working, he started to leaf through the reports on the assault on Dundarav. He wanted to make sure that he had his story absolutely straight before putting his head in the lion's jaws the next day. He sketched out all the questions they might ask and lined up his answers. It was a pity that Arbrechtnisch was still so ill, or else it would have been ideal to reveal him in a coup de théâtre in front of Lament and the whole courier. But it wasn't to be. However, he did have a short video testimony that they'd recorded at Arbrechtnisch's bedside, and that would have to be sufficient. He could barely wait to see the look on that bastard Lament's face when his double dealing was revealed. There was no way that he was going to be able to come back from this act of treachery. McCallan Moore knew the chiefs too well. They feared Lament and his ever-increasing power. And this was the perfect example of why they should nip his ambition in the bud. If he dared to move against McCallan Moore, the Duke of Argyll and Warden of the West, who was safe? McCallum Moore thought with pleasure about the various fates that might be meted out to Lament. On reflection, incarceration on the dread island prison of St Kilda was probably the right answer. The idea of Lament having to dine on Guga and Herring for the rest of his days while slowly going out of his mind on that wind and rain-lashed rock gave him twisted pleasure. His sweet talking would not avail him there, among all the paedophiles, rapists and murderers that were too dangerous to be kept elsewhere. Having made all the necessary preparations, he went to his apartment to pack. He hadn't forgotten about his dinner date with Lamont that evening, an arrangement that he was slightly regretting suggesting. Still, he had no choice now. He certainly didn't want to give Lamont any hint that his treachery had been rumbled. He would just need to be cool-headed and play it straight. In any case, he had the advantage. He knew Lamont's little secret. Chapter 48. The Soused Herring The Soused Herring was Oban's best restaurant. It was located right on the seafront, just a short stroll down from the Realtas up on the hill. The dining room was on the first floor, and parliamentarians and clan chiefs could frequently be seen locked in discussion over dishes of oysters or lobster, all washed down with the finest claret. The decor could best be described as traditional, dark tongue-in-groove panelling and ubiquitous stag's heads, supplemented by humorous cartoon caricatures of well-known regulars and some rather poor paintings of former proprietors. McCallum Moore booked the private dining room in the corner tower. Its major advantage, apart from spectacular views of the setting sun, was that it had its own entrance, so you could arrive and depart unseen. Discretion was frequently critical when dealing with the many factions in the Realtas, riven as it was by internecine rivalries, many of which went back several centuries. John Lamont was already at the table when he arrived. The bastard smiled up at him with an unctuous grin that was just inviting a good slap. Restraining himself, he allowed the waiter to take his chair and push it in as he sat down. After swiftly filleting the menu and reverting to his usual selection of hand-dived Isle of Skye scallops and samphire to start, followed by loin of assent venison en croute with a red wine and truffle reduction, he turned his attention to his guest. John Lamont was at his most companionable, 
quaffing claret and making small talk, asking after the well-being of the Campbell companies in North Africa and the progress of his drain laying in Tarbot, among other scintillating topics. When they turned to the subject of the next day's hearing, McCallum Moore played his part well, ruminating over the mystery of how two of his best men could have been killed and bemoaning the burning of the castle. He was rather enjoying himself, acting up his ignorance, and was particularly enjoying the thought that the next day he could dispatch Lament to a life of girl-shit-strewn misery in the Atlantic. After they'd finished their main course and demolished a fine bottle of lynch barge, he felt the need of a piss. Excusing himself, he returned a few minutes later to find that Lament had ordered them each a glass of Jurançon instead of pudding. Lament had been clever to pick his favourite dessert wine. Doubtless he'd read about his love of the French sweet wine in his entry in Gales of Today, the who's who of the Republic. He joined the lamentation of raising a glass to the success of the morrow, rolling the thick, rich wine around his mouth, relishing its acidity and zing. It was then that McCann Moore began to feel slightly tipsy. The room started to swirl at the edges of his field of vision. He hadn't had that much to drink, just over half a bottle of wine. Normally that wasn't enough to even whet his appetite. He vaguely contemplated his wine glass. It began to swell and shrink before his eyes as if it was breathing. There was a quiet knock on the door which Lament rose to open. Moore looked up from his pulsating glass to see Macatrona and McLean of Dewitt enter the room, all sweeping red hair and smirking pout. Slowly coalescing thoughts pooled at the front of his mind. What did that scheming cow want anyway? What was she doing here? Did I invite her? Is that her natural hair colour? These thoughts then became ring girls, slowly high-stepping from one side of his mind to the other as he tried to grasp at their meaning. A small, faraway voice tucked in a shadowy corner of his head was trying to say something. He felt it must be important, but he had to struggle to hear it. He fluttered a hand at Lament and Duet, waving them to be quiet so he could focus on the words. He peered down at them behind his closed eyelids as they bubbled up towards him. It's in the wine, you fool. It's in the wine. But now he was staring down into the blackness. He could not pull back, and he fell, tumbling head over heels, over head over heels, downwards into the dark, with Katrona McLean of Duet and the Lamentations' laughter ringing in his ears. Blood Bond was written and recorded by Nick Bastian. The Reel of the Red Banner was written and performed by Ewan Henderson. This has been a Book of the Black Tower production.